Hello and welcome. You're listening to an audio presentation by Hamilton Adventist Church. This episode is a talk by Pastor Paul Geelan, delivered on Saturday, November 30, 2019. 2019 marks 120 years since the inception of Hamilton Adventist Church. The church was born out of a camp meeting held in 1898 in Gregson Park, right across the road from where the current Hamilton Church is located today on the corner of Lindsay and Steel Street. The camp meeting organiser was one of the founders of the Adventist Church, Ellen White. Paul Geelan, our presenter for this episode, talks about how the book of Revelation was written to reveal Jesus to us. He begins by outlining Ellen White's contribution as a founder of the Adventist Church. Mrs. White wrote many councils to the church, and these councils were compiled into volumes called Testimonies to the Church. Here's Pastor Paul Geelan. And eventually there was nine volumes of those testimonies. And most of the letters that she wrote during her time in Australia are contained in the sixth volume of the Testimonies. And I want to read a few little quotes from a letter she wrote to the General Conference around the time that she preached at the camp meeting just in in the, the park over the way. She wrote this. At the Queensland camp in 1898, instruction was given me for our Bible workers. And so we're talking about within a couple of months of the time that she was here preaching at the camp meeting. And she said, special instructions being given to me as to what should happen in camp meetings. If you go to the sixth volume of the testimonies, you'll see she wrote about 50 or 60 pages on how camp meetings should be run. And a lot of the counsel was directly uh, from heaven. She wrote this. To the apostle John on the island of Patmos were revealed the things that God desired him to give to the people. She said, study these revelations. What's she talking about? She's talking about the book of Revelation because she's talking about John on the island of Patmos. It says, here are themes worthy of our contemplation, large and comprehensive lessons which all the angelic hosts are now seeking to communicate. She goes on and says, Behold the life and character of Christ. You'll see why that's significant in a minute. She says, In the contemplation of the book of Revelation, which should be our study, behold the life and character of Christ. And study his mediatorial work. Here is infinite wisdom, infinite love, infinite justice and infinite mercy. She goes on just a couple of pages later and she says this. When you have a congregation before you for only two weeks, so she's talking specifically about the type of camp meeting that she ran just over the road in the park there, in Gregson Park in December 1898. She says, when you have a congregation for just two weeks, do not defer the presentation of the Sabbath question until everything else is presented, supposing that in this way that you pave the way for it. Lift up the standard, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Make this the important theme. Then she goes on and says, Then, by your strong arguments, make it, make it of still greater force. Dwell more on the revelation. Read, explain and enforce its teaching. So at this time in her experience, she was doing a lot of camp meetings And the thing that she was focusing on in those camp meetings was the book of Revelation. And she was convicted that we should talk about 
Revelation more. And so she was encouraging people, study more the book of Revelation. Use it in our evangelistic series. So I can imagine if she's just written that in a letter in around the time of the Brisbane camp meeting, that she applied that herself when she did the Hamilton camp meeting just a couple of months later. Therefore, that's a nice little segue for the fact that today we're going to talk about the book of Revelation because she encouraged us to do so. Let me take you back to... Oh, I hope you can see that map okay. Let me take you back to ancient, this ancient city of Ephesus. It's a prosperous port city. You can see it there on the... That's the Aegean Sea. Uh, and you can see there that, uh, that red thing right there is where the town of Ephesus was and is. If you go there today, the main thing that you'll see is this ruin. It's the Library of Celsus, and it's one of the main tourist attractions if you go to that place now. But back when Paul was visiting there, back when the Apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos, the main thing that you would see if you went to this particular city was the Temple of Artemis. And the, temple, the, 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 the town of Ephesus was famous for this particular temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the, the god Artemis was, I guess, one of the things that the people of Ephesus held with great pride, that they were the city in which you would come for the worship of Artemis. I don't want to go into any detail about what happened inside that temple, but it was um, uh, the goddess of fertility and so on, so you can only imagine the sort of things that went on in that pagan temple. Let me take you to a man who was a member of the church. He's fictitious, but I'm going to call his name Dimitri. So Dimitri is there in the church in Ephesus. He's been a convert from the Apostle Paul in the 1850s and 1860s. And now it's 1896. And he's received a letter from the Apostle John. He's lived through the destruction of Jerusalem. He's lived through the death of many of the apostles. The only one now surviving is John. He has, um, the Emperor Domitian has tried to boil him in a cauldron, <clears throat> a cauldron of oil. Uh, he survived that. Um, that scared the Emperor so much that he banished him to the island of Patmos. And he would think that that would be, well, it was designed to shut him up so that he could no longer spread the word of God. <clears throat> but of course God has had his ways and he inspires him to write a book or write a letter, really, to seven churches. Demetri gets the letter. It's a long letter. It's about 10,000 words long. And as was the custom, he stood up in the church and he read the letter to the church because not everybody in the church, of course, could read. And so he reads the letter. The first words that come out of his mouth as he stands to read the letter are Apocalypsis Jesus Christos. Apocalypsis Jesus Christos in the Greek. Literally meaning the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the book, uh, the, sorry, the, the word apocalypsis is the root word of the word apocalypse in the English language. Let's leave Dimitri there for a while. When I say the word apocalypse, 
what, what, what instantly comes to mind? Apocalypse. End times, yes, anything else? Second coming, okay, yes. Apocalypse. If you said, if you said to somebody in the street the word apocalypse, what, what, would, what images would come to their mind? Disaster, exactly. Calamity, destruction. If you go to a dictionary today to have a look at the word apocalypse, it comes up with things like a large disastrous fire or a great disaster. A complete destruction of the world is from the Oxford Dictionary. An event involving destruction and damage on a catastrophic scale. A prophetic revelation especially concerning a cataclysm in which the forces of good permanently triumph over the forces of evil. If you go to synonyms.com, it says annihilation, cataclysm, catastrophe, devastation, holocaust, Armageddon, decimation, or the end of the world. When we hear the word apocalypse, that's what we think of. That's what we understand the word apocalypse to mean. But our friend Dimitri, back in first century Asia Minor, didn't think of that. When he read apocalypsis, it really means, well, he thought not of annihilation, not of decimation, not of all those things, but he thought of a revelation or a revealing or an unveiling. And so if you look at uh, the, 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 those were the images that came to mind. By the way, if you do a Google search on the word apocalypse and movies with that in the title, I was going to get some pictures from movies that had the word apocalypse in them. After looking at two or three of them, I thought that's not a good idea in church. Um, all the movies that have that or have apocalyptic themes are very graphic violence. And so that wasn't what came to the mind of Dimitri. What came to the mind of Dimitri was a disclosure of truth concerning divine things before unknown or things previously withdrawn from view that are now being made visible. So when he read Apocalypsis, Jesus Christos, he says, wow, this letter is going to reveal to me more about Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm going to understand Jesus better as a result of the fact that I've read this letter. This is an unfair unveiling, a revealing, he would have been excited. He's been a Christian for 30 or 40 years. He's known people that knew Jesus. He's got the testimony of the apostles. And now even more than that, this letter is going to unveil and reveal more about the Jesus that he loves. He'll be able to see more clearly than ever before about Jesus. So after reading those first three words, he's not fearful, he's not concerned, but he's intrigued. What am I going to learn about Jesus in this letter? To really understand the book of Revelation correctly, we probably need to take the same approach to it as Dimitri took. We need to take the approach that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Come to me, come with me, sorry, to Revelation chapter 1. We're just going to give an introduction to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through to 8, to hopefully inspire you to relook at this book. You know, I, um, 
one of the first books, my, my friend Paul McLean's here today, and uh, we became friends in a small group at the Waitara Church in a few years ago now, um, <clears throat> in the early 90s. And at that time I had a Bible. It was a great big black Thompson's Chain Reference KJV. Because I was part of a group where your sense of worth was linked to the size of your Bible. It had to be black, it had to be KJV, and the bigger the better. And so that was just the way it was. And anyway, the, has anybody had a Thompson Chain Reference Bible? They're, they're good Bibles, they're great Bibles. They have these, these chain references through them. They've got uh, concordance, they've got um, archaeological supplement, they've got a whole range of things there. They've got um, life sketches of the various characters of the Bible. And then the other thing that they have is a sort of an outline of the content of each of the books of the Bible. So you can go there and you can say, well, this is a historical context, this is the author, this is the main themes, etc., etc., etc. When you come to the book of Revelation, in the back of this Thompson, big, big KJV, Thompson chain reference, you look at the book of Revelation and really the writers of that commentary had no idea. Not because they interpreted it incorrectly, but because they didn't know that nearly every uh, section of the book, they said it was sealed or partly sealed. It was veiled or partly veiled. And so you read through this book, <clears throat> sorry, you read through this outline, and there's essentially very few parts of the book of Revelation, according to this outline, that are able to be understood. Some of it, they said flat out, this is entirely veiled. It cannot be understood. Now, for a book that is called Revelation, for a book that's called The Revealing or The Unveiling, it's unlikely that God would write a book, give it that title, if it's completely sealed and unveiled, and, and, and veiled, that we couldn't understand it. In fact, we'll have a look in a minute about the fact that if you read this book, you'll be blessed and you'll have peace. And so why would God give a book that we can't understand that is designed to bless you, make you happy, and give you peace? That would be an incredibly frustrating experience, wouldn't it? Thankfully, the Bible is to be understood, and the book of Revelation particularly is there to be understood, to make clearer the uh, content of the character of God and the character of Jesus Christ. Um, our Lord and Saviour. If you look at the... This, this is a thought that came to me and I'll share it with you and see what you think of it. The book of Revelation is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And the clearest, most complete revelation of the person of Jesus Christ is found in the book of Revelation. But let me suggest to you that the whole of the Bible, the whole of this book that you have in your hands is a revelation of Jesus Christ, an unfolding revelation of Jesus Christ. And the further you progress through it, the more and more you understand of what Jesus is like. You go to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. You're introduced to Jesus Christ as the creator of the world. 
Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3. You get an understanding of the fall. You get an understanding of the plan of redemption that is there as soon as the fall occurs. And so you're getting an understanding of the character of God that not only created but redeemed immediately when the need arose. And so you go through the book of Genesis and you get through the story of Abraham and his family and God's plan through that family to redeem the world who's fallen uh, significantly. Um, You continue through the... The first five books of the Bible, you get the introduction of the law, and you're progressively gaining more and more understanding of what Jesus is like. And you continue through the books of the, the, the Kings and the Chronicles, you continue through the poetry of Psalms and so on, and you learn more about the character of Jesus. You go through the Minor Prophets, and you hear um, prophetic uh, utterances about the Jesus that's going to come. The more and more you go through, look, I've just made this little graph. This is not not scientific. It's just uh, showing a concept. With the the books of the Bible on the lower axis there, and I'm suggesting that on the the other axis, that you've got an understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, the unveiling or the revelation of what Jesus Christ is like. And as you're continuing to read through Scripture, you're getting more and more understanding. And then, of course, you get to the, the Gospels. And now you've got Jesus made flesh. You've got Jesus now dwelling among us. And therefore our understanding of what he's like skyrockets. It peaks to a whole new height. And we get Matthew, Mark, Luke and John giving their various perspectives on what Jesus was like when he was here. So our understanding of Jesus goes to a whole new level. And then you have Paul writing a whole lot of books. um, Once again unpacking what Jesus is about what the plan of redemption is about, what theologically and practically that means. And so we get more and more understanding of what Jesus is like. But even having all that, can I suggest to you that we don't fully understand Jesus, that we don't get the the most complete picture until we get to the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ which pulls together the themes of all the other books of the Bible and presents them. And look, it says in the book of Revelation that this this book is about the one that was, that is, and that is to come. So it pulls together all the things that were, it presents what he's doing now, and it presents what he's going to come in the future. So without the book of Revelation, you you can understand the things that have happened previously pretty well without the book of Revelation you'll struggle more to understand what Jesus is doing now without the book of Revelation and you'll really struggle to understand what's going to happen in the future without the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation pulls it all together. That uh, lady we've been talking about, Ellen White, said this, in the Revelation, all the books of the Bible meet an end. Have any of you ever been scared of the book of Revelation? You've sort of approached it and thought, oh, there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of imagery that I don't understand. Can I re-encourage you to approach it anew again with the perspective that you're getting to understand the person that you love so much, Jesus Christ, afresh and anew and more completely than you ever have understood it before? Well, having given that introduction, let's get through the first eight verses of the book 
and see what we can discover about the person of Jesus Christ. Because we're going to, we're going to do this with the specific intention of endeavouring to understand more and more of what Jesus is like. Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. We already talked about the fact that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And the purpose for which the book is written is to show us things which must shortly take place. Why must they shortly take place? Well, there's one thing in Hebrews chapter 6 it talks about the fact that there's two things that God can't do. He can't lie. Um, it, it says in there, by two immutable things, the fact that he said it and the fact that he can't lie. And so if this book has been written and it tells us about certain things, then because God has said it, it must take place. God, if it comes out of the mouth of God and God cannot lie, then it must take place. And the incredible thing about God is the fact that his understanding of the past, or sorry, his recollection of the past, his presence in the current, and his understanding of what's going to happen in the future is all the same. Did you get that? Can you try and get your head around that concept? That for us, where... So I can remember reasonably well what happened yesterday. I can remember a little more hazily what happened last week. And give me last year and I'm really struggling. But God has a perfect recollection of everything that's happened in the ceaseless ages of eternity before. He's obviously very present in the present. But he has an equally equal clarity about what's going to happen in the future. Now that, that's an amazing concept, isn't it? That the future is as clear to him as what's happened in the past. And so if he's said something in here... He knows it's going to happen and it must happen because he said it. So we can read this book with confidence knowing that where it says it, it doesn't say it may come to pass, it might come to pass, it, it, it possibly will happen shortly. It must happen shortly. It must because it's said in here. So the purpose of the book is to tell us about things that must happen and they must happen shortly. I was talking to Emmanuel said in the, uh, in the lesson this morning about the nearness of the coming of Jesus and the fact that it's going to be sooner than we all expect. See, at the end of verse 3 there, it says that for the time is near. You know, when we were in that small group back in the early 90s, I was absolutely convinced we wouldn't get to the year 2000. Well, there were things happening at that time. I thought, no, 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 we can't make it to the year 2000. How much has things deteriorated between then and now? And you look around and you think, there can't be much longer. The Bible said at this time, this was written in the late first century, that the time is near. Let's continue reading. Verse 2. Uh, no, sorry, we're still in verse 1. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his, to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, to all things that he saw. Verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. 
for the time is near. The word there that is interpreted blessed is the same word for happy, and it's makarios. And it says there that those that read, those that keep, and those that understand, or those, sorry, that read, that hear, and that keep, they will experience this blessing or happiness. Now, if I want to just read something, I'll do that at about 9 o'clock at night. Um, I'll start reading, uh, and by about 9.05, I'll be asleep. And there will be very little value in what I've just read. If I want to understand something, if I want to actually hear what I'm reading and endeavour to understand it, I'll do that from probably about 5am to 6am. My mind's fresh, I'm alert, I've slept, and I'm best equipped at that time of day to understand what I'm reading. If I want to keep something, then I'll have to remind myself of it through the day. So the real blessing is not just for those that read, any of us can read. In fact, I had a... Um, Somebody probably knows a, an author by the name of Leslie Harding. He's written a number of wonderful commentaries, one in the book of Revelation. Um, but he said, when you, when you want to approach a new study of Scripture, one of the good things to do is just read it 50 times. Just allow it to wash over you. Just allow... Now, you're not necessarily in that, in that reading and reading and reading getting the depths of the insights, you're not getting the nuggets that are underneath the ground, but what you are getting is a good understanding of the big picture. So there is some value in simply reading. But in order to get the true value, you need to hear, as the Bible says, and then to apply or to keep. And so for the true blessing, for the true happiness, for the true wonderful insight into the person of Jesus Christ, there is a necessity not only to read, but to hear it and then to keep it. Verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was, who, sorry, who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ. So you have the, the Trinity introduced here. You have the one that is and was and is to come, God the Father. You have the seven spirits, which is sometimes the way the Holy Spirit is described. And then you have from Jesus Christ. And so you have all of them there encapsulated in just a couple of verses. And then, of course, it focuses on, because this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, it focuses on the person of Jesus. And it unpacks some of the things in the next couple of verses of what Jesus is all about. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that. <clears throat> Excuse me, on that. It says, from Jesus Christ in verse 5, we'll read verse 5 and 6. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood and has made us kings and priests of his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's just park on that. What are some of the things that make humanity or living, I guess, in this world somewhat miserable and hard sometimes? Death, of course, is one of them. All of us in some way or another have been 
struck, whether it's a friend or a relative or someone who's been struck by the pain created by death. My mother died when I was 21. My brother died about nine months later. And those events, 1991, around the same time, those events are painful. We live in a world that death is a common feature. A little child killed in an accident on the M5 motorway in Sydney just the other day. Possibly the truck driver was on his mobile phone. Death is a common feature and it makes the living of humanity painful. How about relationships? They can be the source of the greatest joy and they can be the source of the greatest pain. Whether it's people that um, rule over us in the workplace or in other contexts, whether it's the pain of divorce or unfaithfulness, whether it's a broken family relationship or for some reason something has just gone wrong. Some of the deepest pains that we feel are the broken relationships experienced with those that used to be closest to us. So relationships can be a source of pain. Sin. We're really just talking about the choices that we make to operate in a way out of alignment with the way that God recommends. The commandments of God are given there for our happiness and our protection and the fact that we jump out far too often from that atmosphere of protection and peace brings us pain, brings us hurt and misery. And finally, insecurities. Does anybody truly love me? Does anybody really care about me? Have I got any significance? Am I of any worth? Am I, am I good for anything? Can I achieve anything? Those sort of contemplations, those sort of thoughts also bring us pain. So the main four of the big things that bring us pain in our life, death, relationships, sin and insecurity. Let's have a look at the passage we read and see what Jesus does with all of those. With all of those. Revelation chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 5. He talks about Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn from the what? He's the firstborn from the dead, which means that he has been dead, and he's raised from the dead, and he has the power over death. So if that's a source of misery for you, he can deal with that. Look over in verse 18, Revelation 1.18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. If death is a cause of misery for you, he has the solution to that. Keep reading there, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, regardless of who, whoever it is that he is giving you misery, is giving you grief, is giving you pain, he is the ruler over it. He is higher than it. He, it says here that he is the, uh, the ruler over the kings of the earth. And so he has the capacity to also overrule and to override and to, to, to restore the broken relationships that are in your life. Let's keep reading. He who loved us. If you're experiencing insecurity today because you don't feel loved, Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us. And look in verse 6. Who made us kings and priests to his God and his Father. 
Do we have significance? We have enormous significance. We have been loved and we've made, been made kings and priests in the kingdom of God. If you have any insecurities today, remove the insecurities by the fact that Jesus Christ loves you and has an incredible destiny for you as a king and as a priest in the house of God the Father. The final thing there is it says in the end of verse 5 that he washed us from our sins. If the pain you're experiencing today is as a result of choices that you've made to sin, he's got a solution to that as well. So of all the things that cause us pain and grief and insecurity and misery, Jesus Christ is introduced right at the book of Revelation as the one who has the solution to all of those things. Amen. Praise the Lord. And it says right at the end of verse 6 that that's exactly what we should do because it says that to him be glory and dominion forever. If there's a reason to give him praise and honour and glory and to put him in the place of dominion over your life, it's because he can deal with all of those things that bring you sadness and misery and pain. Let's read on, verse 7. We're nearly finished. Verse 7, Behold, this is the other significant theme of the book of Revelation, the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you look at the various prophecies that are there in the book of Revelation, you'll find that they all have their culmination in the second coming. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. The, uh, the, the prophecies of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 culminates in the second coming of Jesus Christ. The end of the seven seals in Revelation 6 to 8 is, is, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The end of the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 8 and 9 is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The end of the three angels' messages in Revelation chapter 14 is the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is shown at the end of chapter 14 in the two harvests. You have the end of the seven last plagues in Revelation chapter 15 and 16 being the second coming of Jesus Christ. You have an ex, uh, a call out of Babylon in preparation for the second coming of Jesus Christ in Revelation 18. And you have the description of the event in Revelation chapter 19. So you'll see again and again and again through this book, you've got the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you that the solution that God has to all of this world's problems is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not social justice activism, as important as that may be. It's not climate activism. It's not, it's not a bigger institution. It's not the, the solution that God has to all of the problems of planet Earth is ultimately the second coming of Jesus Christ. What that means for us as a Seventh-day Adventist church is one, that we need to tell people that that's the case. We need to call them to make a decision to be ready for that and we need to tell them what the implications of not being ready for that are. What do we call those three messages? They're called the three angels' messages and that's all we're called to do. Because this book tells us about Jesus Christ and tells us about his ultimate solution to the world's problems, our job is to do the three angels' messages. We're uniquely positioned to do that. We're really the only church that's doing that. And the essential core of those messages is Jesus is coming soon. Be ready for that time. And if you're not, this is the implications of that.
as a Seventh-day Adventist church, if we're not doing that, we're not really faithful to our purpose, are we? Sometimes we can get distracted on all sorts of other things which are wonderful, but if it doesn't lead to that core purpose, then maybe sometimes we waste our time. The things that we're called to do are to call people to be ready for the second coming of Jesus that's coming very, very soon. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. Appropriately, the introduction to the whole book is concluded with the words of Jesus himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is, this book, as we've already said, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is to give us a fuller understanding of the one who was, who is, and who is to come. If you want to understand what Jesus has done, then you can go to a whole lot of books of the Bible and you'll get a pretty good understanding. But you'll have that round, you'll have the icing put on that cake by the book of Revelation. If you want to know what he is doing now, once again, you can go to other books, but you'll get, once again, a fuller understanding if you go to the book of Revelation. There's a passage in Revelation 14 that talks about the 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So to understand wherever he goes, to understand where he is now, remember what Ellen White said? She said that we are to study the book of Revelation more, study the work and life of Jesus Christ, including his mediatorial work. Did you remember that in that statement? That's what he's doing now. So to understand what he's doing now and to follow him wherever he goes, the book of Revelation makes that clearer than any other place. And then to understand where he is going to go, what he is going to do in the future, it would almost be impossible without this book. And God knew when he inspired John. See, John's been chained up, in, probably in solitary confinement, in a little rocky outcrop on a little island right in the middle of the Aegean Sea thinking that Domitian, the emperor, is thinking he's silenced him, but it's the perfect opportunity. Why did, why did God choose John? See, John's the last one alive. John, John, John's in his, probably in his 80s, 90s. You know, John spent time with Jesus when he was in his, what, late teens? And so he's been the disciple that Jesus loved in his late teens. He's grown up. And he's been walking with Jesus for decades, literally decades. <clears throat> he's been one of the faithful apostles. He's had eyewitness accounts. He's outlived almost all of his, well, he's outlived his contemporaries in terms of the apostles. He's probably one of the oldest people on planet Earth. He's in his 80s or 90s at a time when the life expectancy was about 50 if you actually survived birth and infancy. And so here he is, one of the old, probably one of the oldest guys on the planet. He's seen Jesus, he's been with Jesus, he's understood Jesus, he's probably got the benefit of the writings of Paul, he's got the benefit of all the Old Testament writings. There is really no one better. There is really no one better than John to write this book. And God puts him in a solitary place and says, I want to give a special gift to planet Earth. 
and you're the one that's going to write it. And he pens this book. And God would have known this is going to be the final book in the canon. This is going to be the final book in the thing that in the future will be called the Bible. I need to write a book that ties all the loose ends together. And he writes the book of Revelation. I just want to encourage you today, if, you're, if you've been scared off by the book of Revelation, you know, I, I, when, sorry Paul, I keep referring to our time together, uh, when, when, when we were together in the early 90s, and I refer to that because I grew up an Adventist, I grew up as a, a Seventh-day Adventist, I was born, I'm, you know, like Paul, he could go through his thing, you know, I'm a Jew of the Jews and I'm a tribe of Benjamin, blah, blah, blah. Pharisee, etc., etc. I was born in Sydney Adventist Hospital. I grew up in Kurumbong. I went to Avondale. I worked at the division office. You know, I, I've got all the credentials. But it wasn't until in my early 20s I moved to Sydney and was really very much at a crossroads and could have gone in one of two directions. That praise the Lord, a group of faithful people um, got me as part of a small group and I went to the Waitara Church. And for the first time in my life, even having grown up in that environment, I got serious about studying the Bible. I read The Great Controversy for the first time. Wow, what a life-transforming book. And there was a... There was, some of you would know Austin Cook. He wrote a little, some, some little pamphlets on the book of Revelation, and I studied those things. Now they're in a comp compilation book, a big compilation book you can buy. And, and, and that old Thompson chain reference, KJV Bible, you could hardly read the words of Revelation for all the notes that were made around the margins, and I really got into it. But I think I was probably studying it for information rather than for transformation. Now, it did transform. There's no doubt it transformed. But just recently, I've restarted a study, and I was actually inspired by Matty when I came here just probably two or three months ago, and he, he preached on Revelation 4 and 5, and I thought, I've got to go back and relook at Revelation. And I started again. And the first insight was the fact that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, you'd think, having read that dozens, maybe hundreds of times, that would be clear. I'm a bit thick. Can I just encourage you to relook, to restudy, to refocus, to, to, to get the blessing that is promised. To get the peace that is promised. It's said in there, grace and peace be to you, the readers of this book. There's happiness, there's blessing, there's grace, there's peace, and there's an understanding of the person that we love, Jesus Christ. Why would you not want to go there? And so can I just encourage you to reopen the book of Revelation and look at the things that Ellen White talked about in that park all those years ago, 120 years ago. She preached because she said that she, that's what we should do and she would have been faithful to her own instruction. She said, do more on the book of Revelation. That's my encouragement to you today, to understand Jesus better by understanding his book. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this book. Sometimes we find it so intimidating. We find it so challenging. But Lord, there is fruitful, fruitful blessing. There is an incredible um, mine of gold uh, 
to be found in this book. Lord, may we, not be, may we no longer be fearful. It's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we, as sincere searchers of truth, would approach this book, we are promised that the Holy Spirit will be by our side in order to interpret it for us. So, Lord, we ask that blessing. And, Lord, we just pray that as we commemorate, not celebrate, 120 years of this church, that, Lord, will go on to greater glory, to greater fruitfulness in the harvest of souls so that we'll be ready when you come very, very soon. It must happen because you said it would happen and you said it would happen soon. May we be ready for that day as our prayer in Jesus' name. <laughs>